Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and I'm here today with my colleague and very dear friend, Dr. Lee O'Brien. Hi Lee. Hi Stephanie. Um, and so I have invited Lee here today to talk to me about a book that we both love and we love talking about and that is Jane Austen's Emma. So Lee, yes. Emma as a character rather than as a novel is sometimes a little bit controversial because a lot of people think that she's not quite as lovable as other uh, Austen heroines. She's a bit uh, know-it-all. She's a bit bossy. <laughs> what do you think of Emma? What do I think of Emma? I, I've been look reading the novel ready for this podcast and, and thinking about it. And one thing that struck me, she's, she actually isn't very nice. <laughs> <laughs> and And the thing that struck me this time around, because I think her father is such a problematic character how alike they are because he can never see that other people would differ from him yes they want it their basin of gruel and they they can't eat (laughs) because he can't eat rich food nobody else can. can yeah and it's made so clear and emma actually sees this herself that she saw mr elton through the lens of what she wanted him to be which is the partner marriage option for for harriet smith and I thought, yes, there's that similarity between Emma and her father. And I think the father is a really nasty character. I don't know what other people think of him. But so, yes, I, I and yet there's something really likable about her. Mm. And to me, that comes down to the real magic of this novel is that really the characters do live you, you you get this vivid sense of the reality of the people and only the greatest writers can do that because hmm. she does it very economically she does I think that's a really perceptive comment about her father and her I don't think I'd kind of thought about that in any great depth but you're right there is a kind of um self-centeredness a selfishness about both characters that um is comes through in their in their actions I really like Emma. I agree that she's not, um, you know, sympathetic in ways that other, you know, like Elizabeth Bennet is. And I think she is quite nasty. Obviously, she is quite nasty and she does many, many wrong things. But what I love about her is just how bossy she is. I love that. I just don't think like, and I do a lot of um, work on the 18th century novel and you just get such kind of milk toast heroines who are just lovely and you know do the right thing all the time and and have no flaws and are you know paragons of virtue and I think it's actually quite bold in ways that we perhaps don't appreciate today that she that she just goes for it yes and it's interesting that she she really uses her social privilege Mm. shamelessly yeah. And and in a way that men do without even thinking about it. Yeah, that's right. And I think there's a really interesting passage where she's so offended that Mr. Elton had even thought that they could marry. And it's focalized. We were talking about the narration and it's focalized through Emma and her sense of outrage that he would be so aware that Harriet wasn't good enough for him, but not aware at all that he's not good enough for Emma. And so she, I think it's interesting that the novel starts with her and her father together. They are the kind of icons of privilege in their area and and power and upper class power. 
and I, I, I like what you're saying because in spite of the fact that she's bossy, and she nearly ruins for Harriet's life by making her say no to the first marriage proposal from Robert Martin. Martin yes. Yeah. And, but I like her too. I, I, she has a confidence, and I think that's placed really nicely against Mr Knightley, yeah. who is a lot older. He's 38, she's not quite 21. So there's a, well, he's 37, 38. So there's a, there's a huge age gap, which is much more, it's quite problematic, perhaps more problematic for us than it was back then. But I don't know if that's true. I think the age gap is always an issue. But there's, there's that constant dueling between them about their authority and about their, their way of reading the world around them. Mm. And she stands up to him. I, I like that. She's yeah. not milk toast, as you, you say. She's not, fainting all over the place and I just and when and some of the insights you get into her I, I remember when she, the, she we see her first going and visiting the Bateses and she she does it as a duty and as soon as you start hearing Miss Bates's conversation you realize you know if you're actually sitting through that it would be driving you <laughs> crazy just as it drives Emma up the wall. Isn't, isn't Austin good at that? Like, just giving you this, like, Jesus. monologue from his face, and you think, I know people like that. Oh, yes, that's right. And you think, what a great observer Austin was to capture somebody to like capture that. that. And to capture Emma's real fed-upness with yeah. it. I mean, she has to, she can't be rude. So she has this kind of noblesse oblige things that she has to go through. But she, there's, there's no way that she's thinking to herself, "Oh, these are the salt of the earth battlers or yeah, whatever." Yeah, yeah, that's she's right. Thinking, oh dear God, you know, do I have to go and see them again? And yeah. they keep ramming um, Jane Fairfax down, down her throat, throat. She, and of she, course, you'd react like she, that. Yeah. She, the first visit, she thinks at least I'll be safe from a letter from Jane Fairfax. But of course, Jane Fairfax has actually written a letter, and she can't even get away. So there's things that make you think oh god she's bossy and god she's this but then you think she's just right on she she yeah. actually reads her surroundings and the people she has to live with in a really accurate way although she can misread them disastrously well i mean there's a depth of psychological realism there because you know that is exactly how you would re- react the way she reacts to jane fairfax is exactly the way you would react to yes. having this you know oh she's so wonderful she's yes. excellent at everything she's you know talented genius beautiful etc if you would have sat had to sit there and hear all about this this perfection picture perfection you would get annoyed too and and austin doesn't shy away from that whereas i feel like most other kind of 18th century novelists would present that in a kind of like non-problematic way you know, she's perfect. Oh, we should be inspired by her. Whereas Jane Austen goes, oh, God, people who are supposed to be inspiring are just the worst. <laughs> They're so annoying. Yes. So she, like, she really goes there with the sort of psychological realism. I think she does too. And th- there's so many interesting things too because I think it's interesting that Emma understands, she sees Harriet's prettiness and her sexual desirability mm. And therefore, and, and she reads Elton because he's a man on the make, mm. and he's uh, and she reads partially, partly she she understands the kind of man he is, but I thought it was interesting that Emma 
would understand and we were given to understand all this is so implicit and, and oblique but she understands that a man can fall in love with a woman because he's he's lust he's, he's he desires her and, and she's thinking that she can manipulate that to harriet's advantage and so harriet can marry up mm. but of course harriet is the daughter of natural daughter of somebody yeah which means illegitimate uh, yeah and and there's and we find out as mr knightley knows right from the get-go that that a man like elton is just not even going to consider her he might have an affair with her or use her and then trifle with her. Trifle yeah. with her. Yeah, yeah. That's a nice 18th century. I've read a lot of 18th century novels. Like, <laughs> yes, yeah. you might trifle with yeah, her. Yeah. But there's no way he would marry her. Yeah, that's and right. Emma, it's interesting that Emma reads the sex bit of it quite accurately that, that Harriet's sexually attractive in this sort of blonde, sort of almost Marilyn Monroe yeah. way. Uh, but she misreads. Strikingly, she misreads the class politics of it. Which is interesting because she's so attuned to class in every other way. She, you know, she's she's so conscious of, of her class position, but yet she misreads the class politics of that. I don't know, whenever I reread Emma, it strikes me how isolated she is. I think she's incredibly yeah. lonely. She's got nobody around her that is of her level, which is why I think the relationship with Mr Knightley becomes so important because he's really the only person who's on her level socially and on her level intellectually and and so you can understand why she sort of latches on to to um harriet smith even though harriet is of a different social class and and you know isn't the brightest tool in the shed um so you know she's just got her father who is this terrible kind of selfish monster who expects her to kind of give up everything about her life. I mean, even at the end when she marries Knightley, she can't go and live in, in Domal Abbey. She has to stay home and take care of him still. Um, so she's she's strikingly lonely to me. And you can understand, like, in that environment where you've got nobody kind of, you know, similar age, similar kind of intelligence, similar interests around you, that you would go a bit stir-crazy and start meddling with people. That, that, that's exactly what I was thinking when I was rereading it just recently because I've read it so many times and it's such a rich novel and I keep seeing different things in it but that's exactly what I was thinking she's 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 very lonely and when when her governess goes when Miss mm-hmm. Taylor becomes Mrs. Um, Weston. Mrs. Whatever, Mrs. Mrs. Weston. Weston yeah she's 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 desperate Mm-hmm. And she's got these dreadful evenings with her father. Yeah, can where you imagine? All he does is, is natter on about, about well, we're missing Miss Taylor, poor Miss Taylor. And she has to hear the same things from him over and over and over again. So we've got this immense social privilege and wealth combined with real deprivation. Well, she's bored, I she's think. She's bored to death. Yeah, and I mean, wouldn't you be bored if you had to sit there and listen yeah. to your father talk about, oh, isn't it a shame that this woman got married? And also, I'm feeling really ill and all I the time. I think that's registered. I can't, the light's too low, but I can't, I, and I can't find the bit that I was thinking. But I love John Knightley, Mr. Mm. He's, so he's the younger son. Yeah. So he doesn't inherit Donwell Abbey and all the stuff that goes with that. So he has—he's a man of—he's a lawyer. So he's out there and he's—he's working. You yeah, know, he's a working man. And there's this when they go, he's come to visit Emma and her father, and they—they they go to Randall's. They're invited to Randall's on the snowy evening. Yeah, and and he's just 
so annoyed and he says, we have to travel for hours to meet people that we've met before. We're going to hear the same thing said that we heard yesterday and they weren't interesting then. So here we are. You know, we all want to be at home and we have to go out. We have to socialise. And he's he just pinpoints mm. the utter sterility of it. Yeah. Being with people that you have nothing in common with who haven't got an interesting thought in their heads mm. and you're with them because they're, they're people like us. They're, they're, you know, they can't go out with the farmers and whatever and working people who might have something interesting to say. Mm. And he actually, he talks about that thing that you're picking up on, that that real isolation and the boredom that comes yeah. with it. Yeah. Well, I think that's picked up on when Emma says she hasn't been to the sea. Now this is in Kent, so the sea's not that far away, mm-hmm. right? So she hasn't she hasn't really left this village that she lives in, and mm-hmm. it's the only um like people make a lot of this flippant comment that Austin makes to her niece who is thinking of starting to write books, um, and she says three or four families in a country village that's the very thing to write about, and people make a lot of that as as you know signalling that she's got kind of small ambition for her novels. I don't think that's – I think she's being tongue-in-cheek there because this is actually the only book that is about three or four families in a country village. And she goes to some length to show how kind of dull and limiting and awful it is when you're just stuck in this village. And, I mean, Emma's got lots of money. She's got lots of wealth. She's got lots of privilege. There's all things that are good – in, in that they make her comfortable, they mean that she's secure, but um, she's bored. She's got nobody around her. She's, she's never seen anything or done anything. She's just been her father's kind of nursemaid. It's, it's not a great portrait of, of life in a no. very narrowly... No, it's not at all. I think yeah. you're right. And it's interesting too, it's partly gendered because the males... Well, the males would have they'd have the they'd have hunting, yeah, and cockfighting and bear and bull baiting and all that really. And Mister Knightley can go stuff. off, and they can go off, yeah, and they can do the ninth, late nineteenth century version of slumming. They can go and and carouse with all kinds of strange people, linked to that rather loose world of gambling and gaming mm. and whoring and whatever. Mm. But for the women it, it, who, who could do nothing of that, it, it, it really must have been a prison. It, yeah. it must have been awful. And I think you're right. She really captures how someone... Because Emma's... I think we like... She, she's attractive because she's un, indisputably intelligent. Yeah, she is. And so that all that intelligence is wasted, you know. Well, she's put it to like really bad uses. Yes, yes. Which is you know manipulative. Yeah, and she's just you know running people's lives for them because she thinks she knows better. Yeah. But you know you can see how somebody in her situation would do that. Yes. And there's this kind of wasted intelligence about her. There is. There is. I think that that sense of waste and and so that getting back to your initial point about Emma herself. I think all those things make make her a very sympathetic character. Mm. You can see what she is, but you can see why she has become what she is. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's brilliant. I, I, I just it's so clever the way it's all done. 
Yeah, I mean, I'd like to get back to that point too that you made about the age difference between her and Mr. Niley. Because yes. that's something that's a bit kind of, I don't know, problematic and weird about it, that, that yeah. he remembers her as a baby. He does. He actually says that to yeah. her at one point, doesn't he? He said, you something about you, uh, I was 16 year old. She says, well, why should you know better than I do? And he says, I, well, I was 16 years old when you were born. Yeah, and I remember <laughs> like holding you as a baby and yeah. now yeah. I'm into you, yeah. which is weird. Um, yes. Do you think that's, do you think that's an us thing or do you like a, like a 21st century mm. reading or do you think mm. that's something that Austin is aware of? That, that's a really interesting question and I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I because I, on the one hand, she keeps emphasising the age difference between them. Yeah. It's part of the fabric of the narrative. We know that he's a lot older. And they and keep he, mentioning it. Yes. And so he has this kind of much older brother. Almost sometimes it's not a fatherly um, relationship because he is so clearly in love with her right from the beginning. And that that's very subtly um indicated but when she's talking about Mr Elton and he's getting so angry and she has no idea why he's angry but he can see that Elton wants her mm. and he wants her and yeah. so there's all that so I I I just don't know because it was so common wasn't it for much older men yeah. to marry young women especially if they were heiresses that's right there's that whole meat market marriage market aspect of it and of course, the younger the women were, the more enticing they were. And I think, I think they, I, I think it's we're no different now. I mean, how many famous men are in public life with partners ten, fifteen, twenty years younger than they are? It, it's still, and that, and it goes, and it, it's a male privilege because when women do that, mm. oh, there's oh, all hell, yeah, yeah, and, you know, shocking, and yeah. stupid, and they're whatever. But we still, I think. I, I'm actually wondering if the attitudes are not pretty much the same then and now, mm. that it's it's acknowledged as a part of life, but a lot of people are very uncomfortable with it. Well, I think the fact that Austin keeps trying to have to manage it yes, is, is an indication of something. Because remember there's that scene where he says, um, Emma is talking about dancing with, with Mr. Knightley, and she says, we're not so much brother and sister as to make it improper. And he says, brother and sister, no, indeed. So there's this whole kind of like yes. acknowledgement of yes. their kind of weird familial relationship to each other, as well as that kind of older brother, younger sister vibe that they seem to have, at least on one kind of reading. Um, there's this acknowledgement that is perhaps a problem and like Austin has to bat these problems away to make it work. Yeah, I think so too. And And one thing... And it, Knightley, do you do you think this Knightley is aware of it all the way through the novel? Yeah, right, right from the beginning, he knows that he's in love with her. He mm. desires her, and she doesn't. And mm. so we just accept that as a narrative given that, as intelligent as Emma is, it has never entered her head that Knightley might be in love with her. Mm. So we we have to accept that, and that's a a big ask actually when you think about it but mm. I think Austin makes that believable it is mm. part of Emma's blindness mm. I think and, and part of if she's been caught up with Miss Taylor and she, her, her father dominates her life so you can sort of understand it but I I think the whole issue of him being a lot older see it's something that she can't acknowledge are we to think that that he has never had any liaison. He's thirty-eight, which mm. 
which back then was considered to be you know, kind of well into middle age. We, we've got such a different vision of ages now. Yeah. But he's, he's not a young man anymore. And it's something, it's a place Austin doesn't go because what kind of man is he? Has he had affairs on the quiet? Mm. I don't. I don't think we're supposed to think that he does. Are, are we supposed to think he's a male virgin? I don't, I don't know. know. Well, what I are mean, we supposed to think about a thirty-eight-year-old, very intelligent, active man? Yeah. What, what? So that's. But that's not part of the that's not part narrative, of it, yeah. narrative at all. So. And we, we tend to read Emma as very young now, but she's. nearly 21 which is not necessarily as young as it sounds like to me that sounds like she's you know really out of the cradle but um for the time she's getting to be a little bit older to be unmarried and everybody makes such an issue of her not being married or not being interested in marriage um you know don't you want to get married isn't a time you started thinking about marriage why are you not thinking about marriage it's it's confusing to everybody that she's kind of absented herself from that kind of um, marriage market. So there is something interesting going on there as well. I mean, I don't know. I think that in some ways Mr Knightley is presented, you know, kind of, well, in kind of obvious ways as like the perfect English squire. Even his, you know, Donwell Abbey, done well, you know. Um, (laughs) It's like, it's not kind of subtle. And he's, you know, he's always got like strawberries and apples and, you know, like the great English kind of beneficent farmer kind of figure. Um, but, yeah, it, it is a bit problematic. I don't think we can get away from that kind of power dynamic and the fact that he's always lecturing her and telling yes. her what to do. And, I mean, she, she gives it back to him, but he is, he is very... Um, he's a bit paternal, isn't he? He is very paternal, mm. yeah, in his relationship to her. See, it takes... We've spoken about our mutual fascination of Georgette, with Georgette Hyde before, but it... it it, it, it's not until you get to the 20th century that Hire can actually address, well, you've got these men who are in their late 30s. Mm. They had to have had a past of some kind, and she factors that into her plots quite overtly. Um, all, all the marvellous, you know, fascinating heroes. That they, they've usually, you know, the, the bits of muslin, what do they call yeah. them, and the, and the barks of frailty. They've had liaisons. They haven't been in a monastery mm. until they're in their late thirties, but it's it's it, it's it's a sign of obviously the times that Austen is writing in, and and she's not she just is not going to go there. That yeah, but but as a modern reader, because it, it's clear that Mister Knightley is a very is I don't know, it's worldly. Very, he, he's got a lot of experience. Yeah, in the he's world. got like he's set up as a lot of like having a lot of wisdom, I suppose. Yes, yeah. and he's not a fool, and he's, he's he hasn't lived a sequestered life. So we sort of yeah, there's a lot of bits and pieces of it that you yeah. You, well, actually, I was talking about this with, with some other people about Georgette Hire, um, and it occurred to me as I was speaking that Georgette Hire has the advantage that Jane Austen doesn't have, which is showing men in a men-only environment, which Austen can't do at any level, right? So even if she has a conversation between two men, it has to be a conversation between two men in, like, a drawing room, Um, you know, and there's not many of them, I don't think. I haven't, like, done a – this is just off the top of my head. I haven't done, like, a count of how many male-male conversations are are in Austen novels, but there are almost none, it strikes me, at at least not in, like, male-only spaces, 
Like she can't go into the men's clubs. She can't go into like, you know, what they say to each other when they're hunting. She can't like show them visiting brothels, okay? So, you know, we don't get to see what world the world looks like for men at this time. Like yeah. we, we very much know what it looks like for women, but she can't write about male-male interactions. That's really interesting. Now I'm going to have to go back and look at all the novels because I, I think you're right. There's very few male-male interactions without women very close or, or yeah. without it being in a domestic Yeah, in a domestic setting. space, yeah, where women could enter at any time. Yes, exactly. But it is registered, because, and it's registered through the Mr. Elton character, yeah. who's a total swine. Yeah. <laughs> but remember Knightley, he says gently to Emma when they're talking about Harriet Smith, and he says, well, I've heard... What, yeah, that's right. I've heard the way mm. he talks when he's with men only, only, and he's not the kind of man who's going to throw his life away on a daughter, a natural daughter of somebody. Yeah, he's very ambitious, and you you just get a couple of fleeting glimpses. Mm. John Knightley says something too about um, Mr. Elton being a fool when he's with women because he's he's playing the lover and trying to attract them and all the rest of it. And he says at one point he can actually be quite rational and, 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 and all right, you know, commonsensical when he's with men. So that's, that's a really interesting... We'll never know, I mean, just how much Austen could have indirectly observed of mm. this male, what men were really like well she had a lot of brothers so i'm sure she knew yes see that comes out in new woman fiction too um um, i think it's in a in a modern woman one of them one of the characters says and this is in the 1890s women just don't know what men are really like Mm. because of that separate spheres male behavior female behavior and all that weight of of masculine and feminine stereotypes and how people must behave in order to be accepted as legitimate members of, of mm. this hierarchical society. And so even in the 1890s, you can't have any guarantee that young women would have any idea. But we, but we don't, we know about them in the novels. There's no way of actually knowing, is there? Yeah. With brothers, there's a lot of hints that you get that women could actually see more and know more than they could ever say. Yeah, and I think you get that sense that you're right, that that conversation that Knightley has about Elton and knowing what sort of man he is is very interesting, I think. Yes, he's a completely different man Mm. when he's with other men and that is registered in the novel. But you're right, it's never shown. That's she a can't. fascinating thing. It's never shown. And I don't know whether Austin got caught up. You know, it's, it's, it's not for ladies to know, you know. you what, what And certainly you, not for ladies to write to about. To write about. Yeah. Because that just brings the whole fiction of the gentleman crashing to the ground. Yeah. Because, because they were sexually active and they were doing all kinds of things with the total freedom that they had and and you can't you can't maintain that fiction of nobility if you actually see the dark side well i mean she kind of does that with elton anyway because you know he's a clergyman he's supposed to be the kind of moral exemplar of the community and here we have a dude who you know is clearly angling for the richest bride he can get who clearly has sexual desires and acts upon them or you know tries to act upon them um who is his 
on the make, as you said, who is ambitious, who is going to try and get himself in, shore up his own position, shore up his wealth, shore up his, you know, privilege. Um, he's not acting as a kind of Christian exemplar at all. He's, and then he goes and gets this terrible wife who is just one of Austen's most brilliant comic creations because she's so terrible. But it's interesting that she's coded as having something to do with slavery. Oh, is she? And the slave trade. Yes, because she comes from Bristol, which is a huge slave port. Oh. And then remember there's that comment about how um, um, she says, oh, if if you mean that as, as, as a fling against the slave trade, Mr. Suckling, you know how she's connected to this family of sucklings um the sucklings are, aren't involved in the slave trade or whatever she says i can't remember but she makes a comment about the slave trade and she's from bristol so oh, she's coded as being implicated certainly even if not directly implicated um oh, in the slave trade so i think that's interesting too there's always politics in austin it's just not you, you know you, she doesn't use a megaphone to say hey i'm being political uh, but it's just it's there and we've lost the capacity to yeah. read to understand the really fine social cultural observations that are part of the yeah. narrative fabric, it's our ignorance. Yeah, I that's think. right. I mean, we 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 see yeah. Bristol, and we just think yeah. of the city. We don't necessarily yeah, yeah, think, yeah. yeah. But so, um, yeah. the uh, I've remembered where that kind of comes from. That comes from um, remember Jane Fairfax yes. talks about governessing as the um the sale of human intellect, and how it's comparable to the sale of human flesh. Um, which is obviously the slave trade. And then she says, if you mean that as a fling against the slave trade, I can assure you that Mr. Suckling isn't, you know, or he or he got out of the slave trade or whatever she says. Um, so there is a real kind of yeah. reference, yes. Yes. you know, a, a clear kind yes. of parallel drawn up so here. All these dark things as kind of weaving around mm. and, and, and to a certain extent within the narrative if you know as you've just said how to read the codes of it yeah but yes i think elton and and one of my favorite scenes in the novel remember when they he proposes to him by some john knightley's forgotten which carriage he's supposed to be in and he gets in with the carriage with his <laughs> wife so that he leaves emma and mr elton alone oh yeah that's right because and, john knightley's very worried about being out in the he's snow had a few yeah. drinks, drinks. <laughs> and he's a little bit you know, hyper, and so he and he thinks that she's just ready to fall into his arms, and there's this comedy of errors that unfolds within this very restricted space, and Emma is appalled, and then when he realizes the extent of his mistaken reading of everything, he he's appalled, and there's this lovely comment at the end that they they get to the point where they just can't say anything. And they're both so angry <laughs> that they're not even embarrassed. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, what does she call all the little zigzags of embarrassment? Don't they? They're just furious. They're just furious, and they just want to get out of the carriage. And so there's this moment of of this real, you know, it's it's not within the polite discourse. It's this real clash of, of different yeah. interests and wills and Yeah. And if you think about like the carriage and how enclosed yes, that is, they're like enclosed. right next to each other. <laughs> they you know, they by this time get out. they're <laughs> hating each other and, you know, really mm. yeah, angry. Mm. But I love the way she says that, um Austin uses a line which is so easy to misinterpret now. Um Mr Mr. Elton was actually making violent love to her. <laughs> You're like, what? <laughs> you realise that 
that doesn't really have the connotations. No, not quite. <laughs> yeah. You're told that he's slightly inebriated, so yeah, yeah. The, so he's probably he, a bit handsy. He's probably <laughs> yes, yes. Again, none, none of it's spelled out. You, you have to sort of sort of put it all together. I mean, he's not, you know, he's, he's not really touching no. her or anything. But but the, the, this is whole atmosphere. In the, I just think I love that. I know I, she's I, so great I, at those kind yeah, of like yes. I mean, it's it's. Not comic in a way, but it also is comic. Oh, yeah. oh yes. And the fury. And, and they, for once, they actually see each other, h- how they are. Yeah. And, and they don't have any of the polite flim-flam to, to cushion it all. It's just bang. They, they, yeah. they realise what it's like. And they just cannot get away from each other quickly enough. And That's a good point, you know, because it's so rare that men and women can talk honestly with each yeah. other at this time. And so when they do out of, you know, some kind of moment of emotional upheaval whatever it is um and they can kind of be honest it's noteworthy mm. you know it's a, it's a big thing because usually there's such as you say layers of a polite flim flam that oh, you have to kind of yeah. go through yeah and yeah. it prevents you from from seeing yes. it, it, it sort of cushions everything and yeah. the politeness just disables all that fury but this in the carriage it couldn't yeah. so i i just love that but yeah i think he's um I think he's a. I think he's a terrible. He's a really nasty piece of work. And, he deserves and, his nasty wife. Oh, he does. He yeah, does, they yeah. can be nasty together. They forever. can be forever. Yes, <laughs> yes. Love, honor, and be nasty together. Yeah, they're the caress <laughs> until death do them. Part. Yeah. Oh, they're so terrible. Now, what, now we haven't spoken about Jane Fairfax and yeah. Frank Churchill. Now, tell mm. me the mm. whole setup about Frank Churchill. It's it's some. I don't know if it still happens these days, but. It's this child who's sort of given to another family. Yeah, yeah. Just it's very odd, like, isn't it? Like, like a little parcel. You know? Yeah. Oh, we, we don't have children. Um, You've got a child, you know, you don't really want to be bothered with. How about just giving him to us? So, yeah. Well, I mean... <laughs> it's it's a bit odd. Like, I mean, Jane Austen's brother had that happen to That's... him too. Like, they had um, rich relatives who didn't have any children and... The Austens had, you know, I can't remember how many children. It probably makes me hugely bad Austen scholar, but I can't remember how many children there were in the family. Um, but there were a lot. And so they gave him to this other family and he took on the last name of Knight because he joined the Knight family and he inherited a lot of wealth and property because of it. Uh, lucky for him. Um, odd. Yeah. In, in our kind of contemporary terms and our way of thinking about the family, it's odd that if the parents would sort of give up their child, but if, I suppose if you had a lot of them and you didn't, and there was only so much money, um, that that happens with Fanny Price too, doesn't it? Yeah, because she, she, she goes to Mansfield Park. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and there's an economic driver. Of yeah, it. that's it's, right. It's not they've seen the little boy. Oh, we love him. You know, he's lovely. Can we have him? They need an heir. It, it, it's they need an heir, and yeah, and it and and it's it's all driven by economics, which I think I think Austin registers really brilliantly yeah but we've talked about emma being a problematic but a very sympathetic character and i still as much as i've got problems with mr knightley i think he's one of her nicest yeah i yeah i agree he's a he's a lovely character i I like him I, I like it when he, he's he's very. It can be a bit of a pain, but he's very commonsensical. Remember when they're all worried about the snow? Yeah, and he's the one who actually goes out and checks checks the snow. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked <laughs> about him, and I like his brother, who's a little bit too blunt 
Yeah. Comfort. But but he's look, he's talking sense. He's like it is really sense. annoying to go out on a cold evening and you could just yes. sit at home. I and agree completely. Wife, <laughs> and there's some interesting things about their marriage. We we may not have time to get onto that. But anyway, now so we've got but what about so the other main characters are Frank Churchill and Jane Fairfax. So what what's your reading of Frank? Well, I don't know. I think you can it depends kind of how you read him and whether you pick up the signs about what's actually going on with Jane. I think he's really problematic in that what he's asked Jane to do, which is to keep a secret engagement, and an engagement contracted at a, at a watering hole, um, is, quite, um, <laughs> is quite kind of sexually suspect for the time. And he's put her in a very compromising position and she's very emotionally kind of worn out by it and you can see that in that um great scene where they're obviously talking about each other when they're on that um, trip to Domal Abbey and they're obviously having fights that are happening off off script off page um and that are coming out in in the way they relate to each other and she sort of runs off and so forth um he's put a lot of emotional strain on her he's behaved badly to Emma knowingly really badly to Emma and, I mean, he, he thinks that they're both playing the flirtation game, which they are, but he also doesn't know how much Emma is actually engaging in this emotionally. Um, so I think he's quite not nice, really. I mean, he's, he's quite – the way he behaves is quite awful to both Emma and to Jane in asking her to keep this secret and this lie that could, exp- you know, really damage her reputation. And, I mean, it turns out kind of all right for him at the end, but he's the kind of character that – like he'll he'll always kind of fall backwards into being okay, but he doesn't really deserve to be okay. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. I find him really, I, I, I sort of quite obnoxious, and I I think it's although it, it's clear that he's very good looking. Yeah, and he's very charming. Yes, and charming, and very sexually attractive. So mm. so we've got we've got that as Mr. Elton is in in his own way. So we've got these different versions of male attractiveness. So um and but I I think it's set up really nicely in the novel where where they keep expecting him to come and visit them because he yeah. owes his he owes father them, a yeah. visit because it's, his father has married. It's very rude of him. Remarried. Yeah. And there's that lovely registering of you know their hopes and expectations that he would come and and, and they have to keep blaming his adoptive parents yeah, and, Mrs. Their, Churchill, and yeah. their whims and fantas- fancies and their nastiness. But Mr Knightley knows that it's Frank Churchill. It's Frank mm. who can't be bothered to come back and visit his father because it's not in his financial interest. The father can do nothing for him. And it's probably dull and it's to probably go hang out dull. in the country well, rather well, than... We know, yeah. actually. We know it's dull. Yeah. <laughs> it's dull. So he's not going to be caught dead coming back and visiting. And so, the only you know, reason he comes back know, is because Jane's because there. Because Jane is there. And yeah. that's crystal clear in the novel. It's he's the selfish. Only, yes, he's yeah. selfish. He only turns up to follow Jane. Mm. So, um, and I, it, in some ways, you can understand him not making a big deal of a of, of a relationship. That that's fine with his father and all the rest of it. And his father must have been happy. He was all clearly happy to give him up. So you can, there's ways in which you can see that he's a perfectly rational creature, not necessarily malicious. But I don't know. I. I see aspects of Mallet. He seems right on the edge of mm. the character of the rake to me, and yeah, the sexually licentious and dangerous male. Mm. And his 
I mean, you. I don't know how you feel about the end of the novel, but I do worry about Jane Fairfax. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, Emma has her comment, or I can't remember if it's Emma or Mr. Knightley, about um, when they're thinking about Jane and, and um, Frank and their relationship, they say something like, um, doesn't it underline to you the importance of truth and honesty in our dealings with each other? Because, I mean, when you think about it, like Frank's encouraged Emma to speculate about Jane having an affair with her best friend's husband. Yeah. Knowing full well. I mean, that's to deflect attention from what's going on with them. But it's not a nice position for him to put his intended fiancé, his intended wife in, you know, that I'm going to encourage speculation that she's had an adulterous liaison or that if if not adulterous, that he was in love with her and married the friend because he had to kind of thing. Um, so that's not very nice. Mm-hmm. And he, he has trifled with, with Emma. He has um, put... Jane in, a, in an unfortunate position. I, I think it's kind of interesting, and I'll never kind of have this experience again, um, and I can't remember what it was like to read the book for the first time. The first time. Yeah. Do you pick up on what's actually happening? Because you can pick up on what's actually happening with Jane and, and Frank, I think. I think there are, enough, there are certainly enough clues in there that a really astute reader is going to pick up on it. But I think it's also possible to be completely surprised by it. I wonder. I can't remember. And I can't remember. I, I read this way too young yeah, to remember. No, um, I can't remember either. Yeah. I just wonder how that might feed mm. into into it because I just don't remember a reading experience when I didn't know that this was going on. And just listening to you talk too, there, there, it seems to me there's two possibilities for Emma herself because we both feel there's there's a nice Emma and an Emma, well, you're nice and Emma, an Emma that we really appreciate and, mm. and that has her good qualities. And then there's the ma- malicious Emma mm. um, who, uh, when she first hears, when she's visiting the Bates and she hears she's got this letter thrust at her again and, and she starts, she thinks, aha, She's the one who comes up with the idea. Yeah, that Jane has had this mm. scandalous, and then and then Frank. And there's a real malice in yeah. that. So, yeah. and you're sort of caught in as a reader because you can partly understand. Well, she's had this woman rammed down her throat as the paragon of perfection, and she suddenly thinks, "Aha! Yeah, you know, yeah. it's only human that yeah, she yeah. would be a bit." I'm going to find the. I'm going to find the flaw here. Yeah, nobody yeah. like nobody this perfect yeah. exists. Yeah, but there's a malice in it. Mm. And I think there's also a malice in the way she manipulates poor old Harriet. Because mm. if Jane Fairfax is vulnerable, Harriet Smith, as mm. an illegitimate daughter it's and good. a pretty one at that, is incredibly vulnerable. Completely. Really. She's got yeah, no, she be, nobody to protect her. No. She mm. could be utterly chewed up and destroyed. Mm. So Emma, there's that kind of malice in Emma that you can actually see replicated in Frank Churchill. Yeah, that's an interesting point because they're the two children of privilege, aren't yes, they? Yes, they are. So you can see where Emma is... Is it like the um, in Pride and Prejudice, the Mr Darcy um, Wickham? The, 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 yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the good hero and the bad hero. Mm. You, it, it, It's never an option in the novel. Or, 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 or partly it, it is if, if Emma and Frank were ever to come together. And and I think the novel is setting us up to see well that would um, uh, just make Emma all the bad things that she is. Yeah. But Mister Knightley is going to make is going to bring out the good Emma. That's a really interesting point because I'm remembering there's a a, um, a television adaptation. I think it's the Romola Garay Emma, which was 
done like 10 years ago maybe, um, with Romola Garay as Emma. And the, the way that that adaptation starts, I didn't think it was a particularly successful adaptation, but I really like the start, which is they show Frank going off to be part of the Churchill family, which is something obviously you don't get narrated no. in the book. It's already happened in the book. But you start off with Emma as a child losing her mother and Frank going off to be part of the Churchill family. And so you get this kind of um, very explicit parallel drawn up between Emma and Frank oh, how interesting. as kind of motherless children. Um, who have, and he's obviously gone away to be rich and she's at home and rich. rich. <laughs> um, so, you know, like they have things to, you know, help them through their sufferings, which is piles of money. Um, but there is an interesting kind of parallel drawn there that I hadn't kind of thought about before no, I saw that no, adaptation, no. that they're both motherless yes. and they're both in these situations that they've been thrust into that they have to manage and, and yeah. They both become selfish yeah. and they've both become kind of too caught up in their own kind of privilege. But where Frank seems to be much more kind of actively malicious, I agree Emma has a streak of, of, of maliciousness to her, but Emma seems to have retained a kind of goodness and intelligence mm. about her, whereas Frank only acts for, for himself, for, himself. for yes. his own self-interest. Yes. It's that thing that happens in romance, a lot of romance novels I don't know if it's right to characterise Emma as a romance. No, probably not. But anyway, that that kind of shadow mm. possibilities, the, the heroine is, is is given a number of choices and you can see that she's going to be not only live a completely different life but be a different person depending on who she mm. aligns her life with because marriage in, in that time i mean it's a very serious thing. it's like walking into a prison and you, <laughs> you, know, you can't get out you can't get you out. think twice too so, bad you, you know it, it really you really are tied to this person forever well and, there's a number of options for emma so, isn't there there's like the frank option which yes, is a bad option yeah um although she kind of flirts with it at the beginning but then decides no i'm not into that um and then there's the single option yes well but i mean is the single option good? Because the only, like, single woman is Miss Bates. Miss Bates. You don't want to end up like Miss Bates. No. <laughs> and, I mean, she's got the money that Miss Bates doesn't, but Miss Bates has also fallen in the world because the father so has, has died. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility that That's where Emma could end up. she could end up as Miss Bates. Remember, Jane Austen is a single woman living with her mother. Yes, she is. Um, so there's another kind of That's you know, I'd never thought of that. Parallel. And Emma, if, if, if the worst happened, would be left with looking after her father as yeah. Miss Bates is looking after her And can elderly. you imagine? It's already oh. She's already bored. She's only 21. Oh. You know, give her another oh. 20 years of oh. living with this guy talking about oh. gruel all the time. Oh. You, oh. <laughs> you may well end up as we, Miss Bates. Did we actually... Do we know where the money comes from for Hartfield? There's that lovely description of it as a little notch in the Donwall Abbey estate. Yeah. And Donwall... Donwall is much bigger. It's much yeah. bigger. And, and it's and, an abbey. And it owns, it owns the village. Yeah. Um, what's it called? Well, I can't Highfield. See. Highfield, yes. So it's Not clear... Highfield. Yeah, yeah, Hartfield is her, her estate. Yes. So it's Highbury. Highbury, that's yeah. it. And, yeah. and Donwall Abbey, I think it owns the village. It's part of its yeah. domain. Well, it's an old abbey that's yes. been dis- with the dissolution of the monastery. So it's, it's huge. It's, it's huge. And controls 
So you can see area. where the money comes, and there's the emphasis on the farming, and so it's a work because Mr. Knightley is partly a working farmer. There, there's some he manages um, his he estate. manages it. Yes, yeah. he's not probably not you know getting he's not like digging up potatoes. Or yeah. yeah, but <laughs> but he 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 he's he's very much um, you know involved in the running of yeah, the estate. Yeah, he's active. Yeah, so you can see where the money is coming from. Mm. I can't with Hartfield. I well, don't I think know it's just, where their money is coming. I from. think it's just inherited wealth. Yeah, it has to. Have, but just yeah, but it, just what? Not 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 the slight investments in what? Investments in companies. Investments, investments in lands. Yeah, it's just I, I an old know. yeah. But just just what I was trying to think through is is your point that they may come a cropper. Mm. Because if it's investments, investments can yeah, go can right. They use that in Downton Abbey. You know, yeah, the, yeah. The, 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 the Abbey is is under threat if they don't modernise, and he and Lord Grantham nearly loses everything because he, he, he invests needs a, in the wrong and, railway. And he needs an American to marry to bring <laughs> yeah, the money. That's yeah. right. <laughs> so it's it's a perpetual problem. Although um, Hartfield isn't like either of the Abbeys, so I'm just thinking of what you're saying that how. I think I think the novel allows us to believe that Emma and her father are, co- uh, are fine. You know, mm. they're they're never going to be um, subject to financial catastrophe. But I think you're right. It's not an impossibility, and it's certainly not an impossibility in Jane Austen's world. I mean, the, the well, South I mean, Sea bubble and yeah, all yeah. The, you know all these things. That... Well, it's exactly what as you were talking, it just occurred to me. This is which is something I've never kind of thought through to any great length before. But what happens to Miss Bates is exactly what happened to Jane Austen, which is her father. Miss Bates's father has obviously died because there's only the mother and her. Um, and they're now living in very straitened circumstances. And that's exactly what happened to the Austen yeah. family because the father died. He was, a, he was the village um, curate um, or the village parson, rather. And um, they live in straitened circumstances and depend upon the kindness of the rich brother in order to to live at this point. So at this point, she's writing at Chawton House, um, which is a house, a really small house, on the land of her brother, which they can only live in because her brother has inherited this huge estate, which is the smaller estate of the two estates or whatever, how many estates he inherited. So they're dependent on the kindness, in inverted commas, of the brother for a house to live in. So they're in straightened circumstances too. So there's an there's an interesting parallel between Miss Bates and, and Miss Austen, and there's that famous sequence where um, she describes Miss Bates and how she doesn't have how vulnerable she is to the the nastiness of people. It's a famous mm. sequence. I can't think of. Well, where Mr. It is. Knightley talks about that when he's he's um, chastising Emma, and, and she uses that famous phrase, which I'm going to mangle, but she has nothing to frighten people into yeah. um, civility towards her. Yeah, she doesn't have money. It's quite early yeah. in the novel, and it's hard. I, I think you're right. It's hard not to believe that that's coming from Jane Austen's own mm. experience of what it's like to be to have to be talked to to people speaking to you as if you're a non-entity mm. and because I get the impression that she was a very private person and she wasn't going around you know saying I'm John, Jane Austen I'm writing mm. these novels and she wasn't advertising that the sharpest of sharp intelligences that she had can you imagine the kind of mm. social situation she herself would have been caught up in 
Well, I get the sense from her family um, that her and her sister were very much the poor relations, that it was um, convenient to, especially for her richer um, brother, um, who had, you know, 11 children or something ridiculous, um, that it was very convenient to call upon Jane and Cassandra to come and stay with them and, and you know, help them out when yeah. another lying in was occurring and yeah. all of this sort of stuff. Yeah. And um, Because they had nothing better to do. They had nothing better to do yeah. and, you know, it's... Jane did earn some money off her writing, um, not a staggering amount, but she did earn some independent income. But she was very um, dependent on other people. And you can, I think that there's an interesting portrait there of in Miss Bates. Obviously, I think Miss Bates and, and Austen are very different characters, but yes. um, you can see that in that kind of sensitive awareness of how awful Miss Bates' situation is. Yes, that, very much so. Yeah, that there's a real kind of... I don't know, a real knowledge of what life is like as a single woman. And Miss Bates trades in words too. Yeah. Miss Bates is always talking. So she's talking. (laughs) So I think you're right. I think there are some very interesting parallels and and, and that kind of inside knowledge. And she's so hurt by Emma's um, comment. About how dull she is. Yes, yes. You you, you will, of course, be confined to one One. dull statement. (laughs) And Mr Knightley's furious with Emma. And it's a real spark of, of just... The poor woman can't fight back, and yeah. and and, we, and by that time we know all the power hierarchies, and it is a nasty. It's a wonderfully revealing yeah. um, moment in the novel that that Emma can never make good because Miss Bates, you 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 see that Miss Bates can never really trust her again. Yeah, that there's always a kind of strangeness she, yeah, to their relationship. She tries to sort of grovel and go yeah. back, and, and make, but she can't. She can't take that comment back. So um, yeah, I, I think I think that's I, I yeah I, I just think that that as you say that observation of the vulnerable woman the, mm. and the un, the miss the unmarried yeah because God knows you can get into trouble being married to the wrong man mm. <laughs> but being a single woman unless you're like Lady Catherine de Bourgh or whatever. And but she's a widow, that. so that's yeah, different. She's, but she's yeah. different, and yeah. she's got money. Money changes everything. Yeah, but single women didn't have money. You know, yeah. unless they were able to inherit, and, and obviously Austen couldn't. And, you know, another parallel between Emma and Miss Bates that just occurred to me as you were talking is that Miss Bates has Mrs. Bates to kind of deal with. She does. You know, the deaf woman who's, yes. who's always going, what, what? You know, <laughs> I can't hear you speak up, you know. So she's got this, this sick or, you know, infirm mother, and Emma's yes. got this hypochondriac, not really infirm, no. but believes him to himself yeah. to be infirm father. Yes. So there's a yes. nice kind of parallel, yes. like perhaps this is an alternative universe, Emma. <laughs> and so therefore when Mr Knightley comes comes calling back and, you know, it's a really great option for her. Well, it is a great option for her. He's, yes. he's you know, they're well suited and, yes. and he's lovely and they're going to shore up their kind of joint power. That's right. And I, and I think we are to understand that Emma realises that she's always loved him, that, that yeah, she hasn't right. known herself. It's one of those novels of, of coming to where the heroine comes to understand yeah. her own ignorance of her own desires and her own self. Yeah, that's the one person she hasn't been able to read is yeah. herself. Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. I love that. Yeah. That And yeah. that's a kind of famous moment in, yeah. in 
like Austen novels, you know, yes. the realisation shot through her like an arrow that Mr but, Knightley must marry nobody no but herself. herself. That's and, right. I mean, that's famous for reading. It's yes. a, and it's such a, yes. you know, I'm, I teach this with my students who I hope are listening to this, um, <laughs> <laughs> about like that moment in as, as a kind of um, example of free and direct discourse, like who is talking, who is you know, is it the narrator or her? And it's such a beautiful moment of using free and direct discourse and it's kind of most, I don't know, powerful manifestation so that you, you're in Emma's head but you're also being spoken to by a narrator, so there's that real blurring. And you're in Emma's body. Yeah. You know, it, it, yeah, it, you're in bodily yeah. um, awakening. It's like it's shot had. through her like an yeah. arrow, that yeah. moment of revelation. Yeah. 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 Have we got time to talk about Jane Fairfax? We have one be... minute to talk oh, about have... Jane oh, okay. Fairfax. Yes, tell me, um, Jane Fairfax. Is it just me or are we to read her as quite sexually aware? I think we are. Yeah. I, I think I... she always seemed that way to me. Maybe it's because she's contracted this kind of bit of a dubious relationship with, with Frank. And that would make it much harder for her to deal with the sexual, the hypocrisy of people around her. Yeah. If she's actually a, a much, see, that's the interesting contrast with Emma. If, if Jane Fairfax is actually aware of her desires mm. in a way that Emma is not. And Jane is always aware of what's actually going on. Yes, yeah. very much so, isn't she? See, she strikes me as a really modern heroine is mm. that a stupid thing to say no i don't think so i think she's very knowing and yeah and you know like even in that vision of of her as a like a that kind of alternative we've been talking about like alternative roads she could have been the the governess and that almost seems to like look yeah. forward to like the yeah. governess fictions of yeah. the 19th century because you can see down the track charlotte bronte yeah playing with that yeah that i do with jane eyre exactly who, and, who and, is and knowing and, and, but but she's she's not licentious or she's not you know she's 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 perfectly you know nice person but but she knows things you know, yeah she, she, she she's aware of what's going on her her power her character it's not driven by innocence that, that is really ignorance they're yeah they're she's, very knowing she's a knowing character i think that's an interesting kind of um, almost shadow narrative of what's going on with her because yeah. she often has to just sit there and take it and just, you know, not really react to anything. And but be, she and knows what's going on, though. Yeah, she does. And because what you say is right, too, because we never know Jane to the extent that we know Emma. Yeah, we never see inside her Because Jane head. is always focalised through Emma, mm. isn't she? And, yeah. And, and Emma misreads her. Emma can't do her justice. Because she's jealous. Yeah, yeah, jealous as hell. So it's interesting that that we never... I find that really interesting. You know, mm. she's a, a very mysterious Yeah, she is mysterious. Person. And you're right, we, we can never kind of approach her no. at all. Yeah, I like that. I like that too. Yeah. Because you can imagine, you can therefore project onto yes. Jane or, yeah. or, or think about Jane in ways that are kind of interesting and fruitful. Yeah. 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 Um, we are completely run out of time to the point there where I think there are actually people standing outside the oh, studio wow. about to break down the door. <laughs> but we couldn't help ourselves with Emma. Wait, no, it's, it's Jane Austen's Jane Austen. Fault. It's Jane Austen's fault. I'm going to blame her. She's been dead for a while. She can take it. Um, thank you, Lee. Thank you, Stephanie. As always, it's a great pleasure. 
you're one of my favourite guests. Oh, good, good, good. If not my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this has been another episode of From the Lighthouse. If you could please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be super helpful. And if you've got any suggestions on future episodes, that would also be great too. Um, we'll see you again in a week, and I'm sure I will bring uh, Emma. I know I almost called you Emma. Um, I will. I will bring Lee <laughs> back <all> right. <laughs> with us again shortly. See you. Bye.